coming up on Conversations and Bionics on Pain. Ellie and I have had an interesting debate, friendly debate about if is the hardware the limiting factor or is the control the limiting factor? And that's, you know, we've had, We've been reluctant to talk about it too much at scientific conferences, but maybe a podcast is a, is a good place to, to bring that up. Please. So I, I would say that um, I, I'm uh, frustrated sometimes when I hear that, you know, control is the limiting factor. Um, I don't think that's the case at the moment. I think hardware is as much a limiting factor as the control. And so it's, there are limitations in what we know and understand about how to control these devices, but the hardware has a long way to go before we're able to um, to really try and see how well some of our control approaches work. And so I'm kind of uh, off the control is the limiting factor to it's a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe Elliot's came around to my way of thinking because I phrased it a lot gen- more gently than I would phrase it over a beer, over a beer or drink. Welcome to Conversations in Bionics and Pain. I'm Dr. Max Ortiz Catalan. I'm the director of the Center for Bionics and Pain Research, which is a multidisciplinary engineering and medical collaboration between Chalmers University of Technology, Salgonenska University Hospital, and the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. This podcast is about the development of medical and engineering technologies to restore human function and alleviate pain, but it's also about the people dedicating their lives to this development and their stories. You are now listening to the first episode dedicated to a scientific article that is titled Design and Clinical Implementation of an Open Source Bionic Leg. This was published in Nature Biomedical Engineering in October 2020, and it was a collaboration between two research groups. The first one led by Professor Levi Hargrove at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago, and the second one by Professor Elliot Rose at the University of Michigan. We had a relatively long chat where we talk about the need of having an open source device that allows for research. We discuss the limitation of prosthetic legs at present, hardware, control, sensor feedback, and the potential directions in which research could move forward. We also touch upon how one can identify bad ideas and discuss a few advices for students and young researchers. So without further ado, here is the conversation. Will you mind introducing yourselves and how you end up where you are today? Maybe I can start. So I'm Elliot Rouse. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Michigan in the Department of Mechanical Engineering and the Robotics Institute. Um, there, I direct the kind of neurobionics lab where we study how the nervous system regulates the mechanics of locomotion. So concepts like joint mechanical impedance and its role in stability and system dynamics gait. Um, and we also develop wearable robotic systems like exoskeletons and robotic prostheses. Um, things like our open source robotic leg, which we'll um, talk about today in this chat. Um, kind of my path um, was a little bit different. I started out in professional auto racing and then really became kind of compelled by um, I wanted my work to kind of have an impact on people's lives, in particular people with disabilities. So that kind of led me to return to grad school and work with uh, Levi and Dr. Kaiken and eventually uh, pursue academia as a, as a career. So now I've been a professor for about six years. Nice. So you, you graduated, work a little bit, realized that work wasn't exactly for you, and then went back to school to pursue a PhD. Yeah, yeah. I actually worked kind of full-time and went to undergrad full-time. So I kind of did those things in parallel, but I sort of, at that time, wasn't ever expecting to leave auto racing. So that was, it was sort of, it was a sort of an amazing experience. And I thought, this is sort of what I'll do for for the rest of my life, and then and then I sort of decided I had to had to leave. Right. Yeah. Prosthetics seems to be a, a field that appeals to people, and then you maybe start just wanting to try a little bit, and then end up full time. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks. Yeah. My name is Levi Hargrove. I'm the director of the Regenstein Center for Bionic Medicine at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago, and uh, the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab is formerly the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. And I'm also an associate professor at Northwestern University. Um, I've been in the field for nearly 20 years now. Um, I started off doing research related to upper limb prosthetics um, in around 2002. 
And then I had a good opportunity to move to Chicago when uh, Todd Kaiken was developing his targeted muscle reinnervation program down here. And then as kind of joined the group, we started working with prosthetic legs in addition to arms and have since kind of grown that program over the past decade or so. Um, so we have a pretty large team. Um, we do look after all levels of amputation, arms, legs, um, and other conditions as well, spinal cord injury, some exoskeleton research similar to Elliot. And uh, we just kind of see what we can do to uh, translate things as soon as possible and do a lot of patient testing, maybe not as much hardcore mechanical engineering or mechatronics engineering as uh, some of the mechanical engineering departments at universities, but we really try to get technology um, on patients to try as soon as possible. The translational research part of the, the development of the devices. Yeah, we, we do both, but we focus on the translational part for sure. Right, good, thanks. You published an article in Nature Biomedical Engineering in October 2020, and it is about an open source leg prosthesis. And I guess the, the obvious question will be, why do you think we needed an open source leg prosthesis? So the reason, I mean, this originally kind of came from discussions that Levi and, had, Levi and I had uh, a long time ago. Um, and particularly, there was kind of a workshop at a conference maybe in like 2012 or something where controls researchers in the field of prosthetics were sort of discussing the fact that they didn't have a hardware platform and everyone was sort of forced to develop their own hardware solutions. And they were sort of noting to, the, to the, those of us that developed these systems that there was this need to kind of help develop a community and a common hardware platform that would help us kind of address the control barriers kind of more efficiently and more quickly. Um, and that kind of planted the seed. And then I'd say like over the next few years, we just kind of kept talking about it. Um, and then maybe around 2014 or 2015, we sort of kicked it off, uh, started submitting grants, started some preliminary work. Um, and we developed it from there, got some grants from the NSF, which was really helpful. Um, and we developed the system, started with a knee, and then transitioned to developing a, a knee ankle system. And the uh, community support has been like, amazing. So researchers from all over the world have sort of begun using the system, and people have contacted me, sort of volunteers wanting to get involved, general public kind of interested in learning about it or doing sort of different aspects of, of volunteer work, which has been like, pretty exciting. It's kind of a different... I wasn't imagining that kind of part of the way that we would do academic research would include sort of a crowd-sourced version of uh, some of the work just by people who are who are excited and interested and skilled. Um, so that's been really, really, really cool. But I'd say it really came from a, a gap in, in the field that was noted by the researchers that were intended to benefit from this technology. Yeah, we started doing work related to kind of high-level control, what the person is trying to tell the prosthetic to do um, in around 2008. And um, we partnered with some excellent um, Michael Goldfarb at Vanderbilt, Hugh Hare at MIT, and they had excellent hardware. It was, it was really top-notch. Um, and so our goal at that time was to, to only work on the control system of the device and not develop any sort of new device at all. And kind of as we continue to to push the field forward um, and do our our line of work, we we did see a need that you know we needed um, a, a device that we had a full knowledge on, you know, could, could repair easily, um, quickly, make a second version if we needed to, um, and so you know we just didn't as good of our, as our collaborators were, and they were excellent. Um, you know, it, that costs time and money for them to continuously build us new devices and, and repair them. And so when we had this opportunity, we thought, well, let's let's do something so that other people don't have to reinvent the wheel that, that we're inventing now. And there are a lot of reasons to um, to not make things open source. And, and I fully understand why why you wouldn't do that. And we have right. devices that that we're working on here that that we protect intellectual property on, et cetera. Uh, but but the benefits of doing this particular um, project kind of, you know, it's for the research community and, and it was a positive thing. So we we're fully supportive of it. 
right? So it came from a, from a need. People realized there was a need because there is no commercially available prosthesis that have both an ankle and, an, and a knee that are power that you could just buy and use. Buy and use and understand fully. Yeah, and you couldn't, the ones that you, if you could buy one, you can't program its controller. So that was like a key, key limitation. And I think like the challenges that Levi's mentioning are like the same challenges that Bobby Gregg is facing and Harbu Geyer and other researchers kind of around the world and around the country are facing. So that story like kept coming up that we need a hardware system that is relatively simple and easy to repair and, and low cost. And we kind of took up that challenge. Uh, so the development of the leg started when you were working in the same institution. So we were both principal investigators at the same institution, and we were just kind of collaborating. Elliot was doing some mechanical work, and we were doing some some different control work. And we thought that it would be a good um, opportunity for us to put our two labs together and, and make something. I noticed you using the same actuator for both joints, and I guess that was a design consideration you wanted to have. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like the actuator is actually like a lot of thought went into what actuator we used. Um, some of the kind of key decision points were that we wanted to use actuators that were developed by the drone industry, so these large diameter motors that have particularly high torque density, um, and that opened some doors for us in terms of design. So if we have more torque from the motor, we can lower the transmission ratio. If we can lower the transmission ratio, we have new options on the table for what the transmission can be comprised of. And we, we ended up going with something like belt drive transmissions, which are low cost and low lead time and quiet and efficient. So um, that kind of started with a selection of an actuator. And then kind of secondly, kind of in line with that, we worked with Luke Mooney uh, at a company called Defy, who had developed a brushless motor drive and API. So communication protocol that let us command these motors. Um, and at that time, these motors have, have many pole pairs that many brushless motor drives were not able to efficiently commutate. So at that time, there weren't a lot of options to actually control them. So this company, Defy, uh, led by Luke Mooney and, and J.F. Duvall, um, had created this, this brushless motor drive, and we ended up using that technology in the open source leg as kind of an off-the-shelf commercial product. Um, and, the, and the technology in this brushless drive stems from some work that was done with Hugh Harris Group at MIT that was an open source brushless motor drive. So it kind of started, we want, we were originally intending the drive to be open source, but the sophistication of kind of implementation of the open source version of that we thought became too high to expect researchers to just, to just use that or do it. So instead we kind of transitioned to the, this off the shelf version from Defy and, it, and it's, and it's worked very well. I would also say that you know, using the same actuator modularity was something that we wanted. So this is a, a knee ankle powered device, but we also thought, well, if someone only wanted to use a knee or only wanted to use an ankle, um, they would be able to do that without having to learn two different technology stacks. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that, that adds to the convenience and the kind of ease of use is that the same controller APIs and, and controller programs can be used to control the knee or the ankle or both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. I guess people are used to having open source software where you where mm -hmm. everything you need is there. But in hardware, it's a bit different because some things you might need to buy from some suppliers. So I'm guessing that you were also making those considerations to make sure that the stuff that will be needed to build the leg will be also available for people and not only in the United States, but you know around the world. Yeah, yeah, we actually like spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, we tried to use as few vendors as possible. So that was like one consideration. So not have all the parts come from kind of many different suppliers, which would increase the burden on kind of uh, purchasing the system. And then we also tried to have the machine components leverage as much like stock material as possible. So for example, the timing belt pulleys are stock pulleys. You can buy them and kind of chop them or post machine them and use them. But as it turned out, we kind of designed with that in mind. But when we ended up having a machine, most of the machining is done uh, by a, a company we work with in, in China called Star Rapid. And they just machined it all from scratch anyway. So they ended up not actually using the, the stock material. But it, but it was a design consideration that we had from the start was to kind of minimize the number of suppliers and the kind of machining burden required to, to develop the system. What about user requirements? User from the perspective of uh, uh, like the researcher or the, the engineer assembling? The researcher, the assembly, but also the patient who's going to be, you know, using it. Because the purpose of the leg, I 
understand that is for research, but I'm, I suppose that you also intend patients to use it eventually, or is, is that out of the scope? So, so we, Ellie and I may have different opinions on this, but I don't envision this as being a device that someone would use at home as part of their daily use um, regimen. So I could, I think that they could go out in the community under the supervision of a researcher. They might be able to use it for an afternoon or a couple of days, um, but not something that they could use kind of every day. And some of the design choices that we made, we made with that in mind. Um, I think the real sweet spot is going to be the research team who can get kind of out of the, out of a lab with like tethered um, controllers and power supplies plugging into the leg, maybe get outside onto their university campus or their hospital environment, maybe go out into the community a little bit. And that, that's a big step over what would be available for many of the, the research devices right now. So it, it's possible in the future, as we refine this, we may leverage some of the key concepts into, into a, a translatable daily use device, but but I don't think the entire device itself. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I would say the same thing. Um, we we designed the system to be for use in the academic community. And that and that kind of factored into a number of the decisions that were made. So while it, maybe it has potential to be a commercial product that ends up being like used by kind of people kind of in daily in daily use, um, that would be exciting, but that certainly wasn't the attention. And if if we were designing it for that for that situation, I think we would make some decisions that were different. Like, for example, the knee is designed to have a, a kind of robotics component called a series elastic actuator incorporated into the knee joint, which allows for high fidelity torque control, energy storage return, some other things, um, which is really a con- that serves control researchers as opposed to potentially like end users. So if we were if we we're designing for end users only, I think maybe we we may not have designed it that way. I find this interesting because that particular design consideration, if you have that capability for the engineers working on the control, and then they develop something that is great with that hardware, then they won't be able to implement it in a leg that doesn't have it. Or will that be able to translate to a leg that doesn't have that kind of capabilities? So I think if you demonstrate the the improve, and this this is one of the primary reasons we developed the leg was so that we could compare approaches and demonstrate like dramatic or even small improvements over state of the art. And from right. you know my experience working with companies are if you can demonstrate something that's clearly better, um, you have uh, an excellent opportunity to to reach out to them to to get that feature incorporated into a manufacturable commercial device. And so that that would be my view on it is if you if your approach uh, the series elastic element was fundamental to your control approach and your control approach outperformed the the comparison condition by a clinically significant margin I think that um, the leg manufacturers would be very receptive to um, modifying or building a new device that incorporated this yeah. Okay, so if I make an analogy with the upper limbs, will be like most hands use one degree of freedom, and then you build a research hand that has individual electric fingers, and then you show that the function is a lot higher, then that will put the pressure on the manufacturers of the single degree of freedom hand to produce hands with individually actuated fingers. So you, you're really making this platform as a, a, as a Ferrari, like a top-notch device to develop sophisticated stuff that once you can show the clinical benefit of, can tell manufacturers uh, or com- established companies, this is the kind of stuff you want to go because patients have benefits on, on the technology. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. And that's so, a great analogy. And like for specifically the series elastic element, this the knee joint, for example, can be used both with and without the series elastic component. So it lets researchers sort of explore this idea of is including series elasticity sort of worth the trade-off because it adds mass and complexity and, ro- and robustness challenges. So if it turns out that what we learn from studying control using the open source leg is that the series elastic actuator is kind of worth this trade-off, then that would be information that could be passed down to manufacturers. But I think, yeah, that's, I mean, this gets to the, the original idea of kind of why this is a potentially valuable platform. Right. 
Yeah, and I think this is an important point because, you know, when we try to develop the new technologies and we present this stuff in some conferences, we're often criticized by the practitioners saying like, well, it's all very nice, but, uh, you know, I can't use it with my patients. And, and sometimes, like in this case, the intention is to push the edge on what's possible so then you can drag with you the manufacturers that will make the commercially available device possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that message is good to be clear so people don't have the expectations, oh, well, this is an open source, like I want to build it and start using it with my patients. It wasn't designed with that purpose in mind. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We would encourage people um, to, to use it to push their research forward. And it, it is great to get feedback from the patients who are who are using it, just maybe not as part of their everyday um, lives just yet. Yeah, because in the article you report, um, you had it used by three patients, I believe, who have used power prosthesis in the past. So in, in the article, I think we, we reported three or four, um, but we have had, uh, I think, nearly 20 or 30 use the device um, okay. and who have used other power devices um, You know, since, since the time that we wrote the article and, and it did the full uh, experimental protocol that we, we reported on. Uh, but we've had um, we've had I think at least twenty users use this particular device, um, and they all not they all have you know differ differing feedback um, depending on the experiment that we did on any given day. Depending on the controller that you were testing, I guess. The controller that we were testing, um, you know, this is this is it's a great device. It's a newer device, so we're always looking to make enhancements. So. Some of the early users didn't have the opportunity for um, some of the enhancements that we've made. Next would be stronger materials, different, um, even things like we're learning in the socket. This isn't directly related to the device, but learning how to suspend the device better to make it more comfortable just because it is a bit heavier than than their sea leg, for example, or, or their rayoni or whatever they're using. And so some of the early users you know, didn't have the opportunity to use as comfortable a fitting socket. It, 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 we've, we've learned as we've went along the way. And so all of those um, other issues impact their their opinion of any new technology. Do you think that when you're using a, a more sophisticated leg, it's even more important to have a perfectly fitting socket because of the... Uh, my opinion is it depends on what you're asking when you're doing the experiment. So if, for example, if we are demonstrating someone can walk up stairs with a reciprocal or step over step gate, um, they need to have a comfortable enough socket to um, tolerate the forces and torques that are on the residual limb. But if we're only doing uh, an hour long experiment, we may not need to worry so much about a pressure sore formation after 10,000 steps, for example. And so we may choose a slightly different um, socket. We also might want instrumentation like pressure sensors inside of the socket or EMG sensors, for example. And so that will impact socket fit. Um, and so that's, that's, again, just a different challenge of, of doing lots of experiments to, to evaluate lots of different things at the moment. And it's kind of not what was in the, the, the paper, which was just straight up demonstrating um, ambulation across several activities. Mm-hmm. So I guess something that is closer to, to my, my own work, what do you think is the need of having neural commands? Because presumably with this hardware, you can take better advantage of using signals coming from the patient. Or you think that now because you have a leg that has more instrumentation than conventional ones, you won't need neural drive? That's a real interesting question. I would say that we have the opportunity to make legs much more functional than they are just using sensors like cameras, uh, load cells, inertial sensors. However, we haven't been able to approach the peak of what would be possible because we don't have a good enough neural interface yet. And so I would say that, you know, we're, we can make a, a step an important step in control and performance using non-neural interfaces. And then I think you'll see another step, which may be even bigger, maybe not, but it may be even bigger um, from that level to to approaching something that's, um, I won't call it normal ambulation, but, you know, ambulation that allows you to do 
spontaneous activities and you get outside of kind of cyclical activities like mm -hmm. only walking or going up and down stairs like maybe mountain climbing all sorts of different activities that that we haven't even thought about yet mm -hmm. we'll have to wait and see on that elliot probably has other thoughts on it as well i personally would love to have like some neural information to help our control systems but at this time the like uncertainty is too large we can't get a strong enough control signal to actually use it in our controllers the the reliability of the onboard mechanical sensors is so much greater so that kind of dominates the control decisions at the moment um, i'm definitely hopeful that in the future we'll gain access to some neural information i think that that will change the game like that's i think quite a partly what we're waiting for is something when I mean, we can get there's only so high and i think we can get with the onboard mechanical sensors but given that the leg is supporting the body, there's a lot of risk associated with fall or injury potential. Right now, we have to go with the sensors that, that provide uh, very strong signal to noise. So hopefully, eventually, we'll be able to get neural signals that kind of fit that description. But currently, I'm, I'm not sure we're there yeah. yet. I mean, we're working on it, but uh, it's taking time. <laughs> I think that in, in a short-term lab environment, so if you want to spend two hours setting things up in a real precise way, we've been able to demonstrate some, right, some benefit right. in using mm -hmm. neural signals. And so it's about two hours of setup and one hour of troubleshooting and one hour of experimentation. Mm -hmm. And when you do it carefully like that, you, you do see a benefit and there is a clear benefit. Um, however, that's, that's not clinically deployable, you know, in the opinion of our uh, clinicians and, and they're definitely correct. And so as we can, as we can improve the robustness and and have access to even more neural signals, then I think we'll even be able to push the envelope further. So I wouldn't say that we haven't shown benefit yet. I would just say that the benefit hasn't outweighed the the kludginess of, of the setup. Right. Yeah, but I guess that's our job kind of to push the- <laughs> your, your job number one. I've read about this osseo-integrated <laughs> neural prosthesis that, that would be tremendously helpful in what we're doing yeah we're really looking forward to start testing and of course one of the reasons for me to to get interested on on your development and we you know as you know we're planning to build one in our lab is to do this testing because we collaborate with Osser and we collaborate with Autobook and so on but also has a power need Autobook has a power ankle and then if we want to put those two together we need to get them to collaborate which I mean they're great guys but mm -hmm. they're still independent companies so they, there are some mm -hmm. conflict of interest that hopefully we can uh, workout. So we talk a little bit about the challenges. We mentioned the connection with the person is important. So the way it's fitted to the patient and then potentially neural signals could improve leg prosthesis. What other challenges do you see for lower limb prosthesis? You have two actuators. Do you think we need more degrees of freedom? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great question. Um, personally, Kind of at this time in the, in the field, I would not recommend doing more degrees of freedom. I mean, there, it, it's interesting from a, from a research perspective and a mechanical design perspective. There's definitely good work being done and, and good things to learn. But in terms of if we're talking about a potentially like clinically deployable system, as we mentioned kind of before in this talk, like adding other degrees of freedom increases complexity. It increases mass. It increases controller burden, which is already a very challenging problem. So at this time, I'm not sure I think that adding another degree of freedom kind of is worth the offset or trade-offs that occur, but I'd be interested to hear Levi's take. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I agree with you. I understand what you're saying. However, I do think it depends on if you are developing um, for above knee or below knee amputees. And so it, if you're if you're having a below knee amputation, perhaps you, you do want two degrees of freedom Let's put it this way, whether it's active or not, you might want to control yeah. the, the medial lateral compliance, whether whether it needs a motor or not, it's different. Mm -hmm. So I think in terms of active degrees of freedom, I agree with, with Elliot, but in terms of allowing um, control over other degrees of freedom without an actuator, I, I think that there's questions to be answered there. Yeah, I think it is true that, that a passive degree of freedom could be beneficial. And I think some, you know, some prostheses, prosthetic feet have are sort of bisected through the midline to kind of add that passive degree of freedom. Um, and something like that could eventually be implemented on the uh, open source leg if it turns out that that's, that's helpful. But I, yeah, I agree. There is some 
some room, I think, for a passive degree of freedom that might add benefit. But in, in some cases, some of that passive degree of freedom is taken up by relative displacements between the you know, prosthesis, foot shell, and foot shell and shoe, right. for example. And, and in the case of non-osseointegrated non um, interfaces, the, there's a lot of compliance between the, the socket and the residual limb as well. Just it, it's not suspended nearly as well as what you would what you would um, have access to using the the Ilpro system, for example. Attachment, right? Yeah, exactly. Elliot and I have had an interesting debate, friendly debate about if is the hardware the limiting factor or is the control the limiting factor? And that's you know we've. We've been reluctant to talk about it too much at scientific conferences, but maybe a podcast is a, is a good place to, to bring that up. Place. So I, I would say that um, I I am uh, frustrated sometimes when I hear that you know control is the limiting factor. Um, I don't think that's the case at the moment. I think hardware is as much a limiting factor as the control, and so it's. There are limitations in what we know and understand about how to control these devices, but the hardware has a long way to go before we're able to um, to really try and see how well some of our control approaches work. And so mm -hmm. I'm kind of I'm kind of uh, off the control is the limiting factor to it's a limiting factor. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe Elliot's came around to my way of thinking because I phrased it a lot gent more gently than I would phrase it over uh, a beer, over a beer or three. Um, I, yeah, I would say there are limitations on both sides. So I, I'm sort of with you that that hardware is a challenge, no doubt. Um, in my mind, the difference is like whether the challenges stem from fundamental limitations of kind of what we know or or the technology itself, or whether they stem from sort of practical issues of time and money, for example. So in my mind, like the hardware design, like we actually, as, as like humans, we kind of know how to design very sophisticated mechanical systems. We sort of like, you know, over the last several hundred years, we've done really well with designing machines. And a, and a, a two degree of freedom robotic leg is sort of no different. It just requires some sort of modifications based on making it lightweight and high performance. Um, but then again, you know, if you have a single lab developing it on government funds, that's not usually, it's some resources, but it's not maybe the, the resources needed to develop a system that's as robust as what would potentially be needed for long-term use um, in the field. So we've maybe started on that with the open source leg, and, and I think there's more revisions that need to be done and more refinements that need to be done. On the In my mind, on the controller side, it feels different because it's it's it seems like a very large challenge that has fundamental issues. Are we, are we even able to know from the available data that we have, what is someone doing? What's the appropriate torque to provide? How do we recover from something we've never seen before? You know, what's a, what's a stumble look like or a stumble recovery? You know, so things that I think there are kind of fundamental issues about the science and engineering that are maybe present in sort of controller research that, are less present in, in sort of other areas. And I don't think that that's, I don't think of that as a bad thing. I think of that as kind of the state, that's like the leading edge. So we're up against the leading edge and we're solving challenges kind of as fast as we can. And it's a, it seems to be, a, it's a very challenging problem. You know, control, control a high degree of freedom or a system with many state variables with very little information that has to get it right basically all the time. So that's a very, very, very challenging problem in my mind. But I, but not to discount what you're saying also, Levi, like, you know, hardware, both sides are very challenging. So I'm kind of with you there. I just find it frustrating that um, it's it's hard, it's harder to get uh, research funding to to develop a better actuator for the prosthetic, for a bionic leg, for example. So, you know, I could, I could write a grant because Elliot is right. There's fundamental hypothesis driven questions related to the control that we just don't know. And we do need to study we do need to study it and, and figure them out. However, it, it seems to be, at least for the grants that I'm familiar with writing, it, it's more difficult to say what, you know, the limiting factor at this point is just giving me $2 million to make this device more robust so that I can do a million dollar study to answer this other question. Right. And so that's, um, I don't, 
I don't know how to address that. I think that's just an ongoing challenge. And, mm-hmm. but, but I do think that, you know, the open source leg is, is a great start, it, especially because we can repair if, if something goes wrong. Um, it's designed so that if something does break, we know what the first thing to check is, right? So you, you can you can do maintenance on it, preventive maintenance. You can, um, th- that's what we should be doing. Uh, that being said, I think that if, if we had a large um, opportunity for a large pool of funding and a good commitment from say Elliott's group, we're not, it wouldn't be our group, but it would be Elliott's group or some other um, top-notch mechanical design group to say what we really need is you to take um, two kilograms out of this and make the battery last X, X hours longer. And I, I think that would be a very expensive proposition that that's just hard to get funded. Thank, thank goodness for the National Science Foundation who, <laughs> who, did, fund, who did fund this. Um, and, but I, I think there's easily another two to $3 million that could go into this device that would open up opportunities for me to try new control approaches. Yeah, I think that's right on. Something that I often try to explain when people are just starting the field or patients is that there are different factors when working with a prosthetic limb. And I, I normally talk about four. So the, the hardware, the control, the sensor feedback, and the attachment. And there are limitations in all of them. And sometimes, you know, one is the smallest or or the biggest bottleneck, depending on you know how you picture it. But uh I have the feeling that in upper limbs is certainly the control that is the the limiting factor and sensor feedback, which is absent. Uh, For lower limbs, it's it's harder to judge because exactly what you said, there are some fundamental questions that require hardware to be answered, which I think brings to me home the purpose of your paper and the importance of it. Because without this kind of hardware, it's almost impossible to answer those questions. And then in this case, it seems like you need to push the boundaries of both the control and hardware more or less kind of like together to be able to answer mm-hmm. the questions. That's true. And, and I would add a fifth um, pillar, if you would, and it's especially important for, for lower limb, which is, uh, let's call it safety and therapy or, or instruction on how to use the device, because you can't even get up on a device unless you have either a therapist or a harness system or right. some instruction on how to use it. So yeah, you could put a prosthetic arm on with appropriate mechanical constraints and you don't have to learn to, to walk with it. You need some instruction on how to use it. And that's very important. The occupational therapy on the, the leg device, you actually need hardware to do the type of work that, that we're trying to do. Right. So you can't do, VR ambulation, at least not at the moment, although the emulators that, that Steve Collins and, and Humatech are, are designing are, are a good step in that direction. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, you need actual hardware or, and instruction on how to use the hardware to even get started in this, in this field where we're targeting the open source leg. Would you agree with that, Elliot? Yeah, I think that's right. And I, also, I just kind of wanted uh, jump off of one thing you said, Max, which is like the the sensory feedback part. So like the sensory feedback part is is I think also like really important. And some people are starting to explore that in the lower extremity, but we haven't gotten very far yet. And I think that that's a big open question. And I know Hugh Her and Tyler Kleitz and Paul Soderna and others are kind of looking at kind of different options there. But I think there's that's still a huge open question that could have some transformative impacts on lower extremity robotic prosthesis use, but the field is, I think, further behind upper limb kind of right. as, as usual. Yeah. And I would echo that that would even be important for uh, non-motorized devices as well. Yeah. We see um, patients walking up and down the stairs. If they're above knee, they have no idea where their foot is, for example. Yeah. And so it, it makes it difficult to, to place your foot appropriately on the, on the step. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's just right. one, one example of, Right. Of the challenges. Yeah, because you can improve any of those parts, right? You can improve the hardware, you can improve the control, the sensory feedback, the attachment, socket to os integration, and they will all contribute to a certain degree to the improvement of function. And I guess something that I find difficult for us as a researchers, it's to set the priorities based on the patient's needs rather than the things we find cool or we get we can get funding for 
right? Because mm -hmm. I will personally put sensory feedback with the lowest priority. So I will say, you know, control is more important than sensory feedback. But, but I'm not a person that started my career on sensory feedback. So the people that started their career on sensory feedback will probably disagree. Um, but, you know, there is contributions to be made in all these fields. And I guess this takes me to my next question for students or people, you know, thinking to enter in this field, where would you say will be the areas where there is, you know, work to do or where you would like to see people working? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I actually get this question um, a decent amount of time through students at, at Michigan. Um, and the kind of some of the things I tell them are the kind of rehab wearable robotics space is a little bit different than a lot of other industries in the sense that the markets are generally small kind of at this time, which means the, the R&D departments in the industry are sort of also like relatively small. So that means there's not a lot of jobs kind of in the industrial R&D world. The teams are small. And most of the kind of work, I'd say the innovative work or kind of work kind of pushing the limits is done in academia funded by the government. So, so that means like if, if a student would like to get into this field, a good place for them to start is, is an academic research lab. So getting involved, uh, either when they're an undergrad student or a graduate student or a volunteer. Um, I had, you know, with the open source leg project, if you go to the website, there's, you know, some, a student from India just contacted me, created a gazebo Ross simulation of the open source leg, and we posted it and it's got a whole like tutorial on it. And that was just, you know, somebody who wanted to get involved, kind of did their homework. And now they're part Doing of the contribution. So, yeah. So I, so I think, I think the wearable robotics world is getting bigger, especially with, with exoskeletons kind of becoming kind of more in focus, but it's a little bit of a different kind of vocational landscape. And I was, I typically encourage students to get involved in, the, in an academic research lab, even, even just on a volunteer basis, just to kind of get, get to feel for what it's like and see if they, if they really want to go into this, this field. Right. I guess for me, I, I don't want to become an old curmudgeon. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> a lot of, a lot of times someone will say to me, well, they tried that back in 1990 and it didn't work. So mm -hmm. the idea is no good. And like a lot of things have changed since 1990. And, you know, you get the, the, one of the examples are kind of the, the automatic grasp feedback for upper limbs, for example. It's like, well, they, people just turn it off. And I'm like, well, that, that maybe, maybe the idea was ahead of its time. And so mm -hmm. when I talk with students, I really say you should review everything critically, um, everything, everything that I've written in the past, everything that anyone's written in the past critically and then question if if it still holds true or not and so you don't really you know you have to do it respectfully of course but you should be you should be a critic of your own work and everyone else's work um and so i think that whenever i hear an idea that i don't necessarily immediately agree with I, because i've read something in the past i just kind of have to take a step back and i encourage students to do the same thing so often i'll ask the students what what they're interested in and if they have an idea that they want to pursue, because um, quite often they're pretty clever and they have a different angle coming from outside of the field that that I haven't been pigeonholed in over the last 15 years or heard heard someone. And so that's one way I approach it. Scientifically, I'm interested right now in um, body area networks. So like connected sensing, cameras, um, we, for for years, we only considered a sensor as long as it was attached to the device or the person. I don't think that that's the right thinking anymore because technology has developed to a, a point where you could easily instrument the the um, non-affected side. And again, that's an example of something that I would, you know, it's like the old OSER required an orthotic in the sound in the sound side in order for it to, to work properly the old um, power leg, power knee, mm -hmm. sorry. And then mm -hmm. it's like, well, that's, that wasn't a great idea maybe in, in 2000 where it was perhaps kludgy, but now um, that's a, a time and money problem. And if that improves control, um, that, that would be an opportunity worth um, pursuing. So any sort of connected sensing, uh, environmental awareness, et cetera, that, that's kind of where we're interested scientifically. And there's a lot of work to be done there. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. Um, 
and especially as sensing starts to become more integrated into clothing, like the, the, the whole sensing game is changing. And I, I think it's right to think like, okay, the conclusions maybe we drew 10, 15, 20 years ago aren't necessarily the same answers anymore. And I think, yeah, I think that's a great thing to remind the field. Um, and yeah, now it's not so hard to get sensors and get data, get information about location, get information about environment, things that you would never have had access right. to back, back then. So now I'm going to take this conversation to a, maybe a more uncomfortable place, but also more interesting <laughs> one, because um, I agree. It is true that because it didn't work in the past, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to work now because technology is better. But everything is a trade-off and they're also bad ideas, right? I mean, and there's a lot of subjectivity in what is a bad idea, but the way I see it is why, why would I care if somebody's working on a bad idea if it's not me? And the reason why I will care will be that we have limited amount of resources. So we have a few people, there are limited amount of grants, and I would like to see the resources available to use in the best possible way. Now, Myself or you or, you know, nobody can really say what is the, the best thing, but there are some things that are more likely to create a breakthrough than others. So my question, but my next question will be, how do you do to identify bad ideas and to kill ideas that, that you thought were good? And sometimes even your students might come with an idea that, you know, is maybe not great. And then you are in between motivating them to pursue it because, you know, they came up with it or also, if you are interested on their career, I will say to some of my students, like, look, it's not going to be a game changer. So therefore, I will you know, suggest that you focus on something that will have a bigger impact. You know, I might be wrong, but I have a little bit more experience to say that. So how, what do you think mm -hmm. about that? I can, like... <laughs> <laughs> well, I've certainly had my share of bad ideas. Uh, and continue to. Um, question I ask myself is what, uh, so there, there's good ideas that people tell you are bad, right? So there, yeah, it's actually a good idea, but people just say it's a bad idea, it's a bad idea. And you, sometimes you need the perseverance to just power through it. And then there's <laughs> bad ideas that people tell you are bad. <laughs> and so I think that when I, whenever I, I guess for me, it's evaluating near-term versus long-term. Like the reason I'm pursuing this idea, is it because of something near-term or is it because of something long-term? And just really being honest with yourself of, I'm going to pursue this um, augmented reality sensor-based approach because in 10 years, I think that the technology is going to be able for me to deploy it. If you go in with that, idea and you talk to clinicians and you say, this is an idea for 10 years from now. Um, I think you'll get a different mm -hmm. response um, than if you say, everyone's going to wear one of these in six months from now. This is not, this is not the right approach. And so just continuously evaluate what your idea is and where, where it's kind of the stopping point is how I try to, to uh, mm -hmm. cut bait. Yeah. I mean, ideas. the way I think of it is we're sort of, all on the same team, you know, we all want kind of the best work to be done to impact people's lives and kind of make the world better. So I want that for my colleagues and I think they want that for me. So I talk with people like, you know, Levi and my colleagues in Michigan and others in the field and, and we kind of talk about ideas and I get feedback and that's kind of like part of how I try to understand what's worth pursuing and what isn't. And it's sort of that combined with like a pretty rigorous kind of rationale vetting process. So like, how do we know that this is worth doing? How are we convinced? Um, there's a framework created by DARPA called the Heilmeier Catechism. And that's like a pretty good framework, I think, for looking deeply into like, is this idea valuable? Um, so sometimes we use that as kind of a, a lens to look at a question. But like, in general, I would say we do our best. And a lot of times we get negative feedback on grants and we, you know, try to revise and make it better. And ultimately, like, we're all shooting for technologies or, or research that that makes people's lives better and so that's kind of what keeps it going and even when we get critical or negative feedback maybe it doesn't hurt so much so i, I guess it could be summarized to critical evaluation of the idea uh, and critical from the viewpoint that you try to be as rational as possible and objective as possible and 
what I do is try to keep in mind that I will have a, a particular attachment to the idea because I had it, uh, but but that doesn't necessarily make mm -hmm. it you know better or or worse. And what is true is that we. I think we all have been told that one of our good ideas was a bad idea by somebody who has in a better position of power at the time. I, th I think we all have gone through that. That is like a common thing. Yeah. And, and I think at that point, for me, it was that the evaluation I did of the idea, it just withstand the criticism. I mean, the, the criticism didn't hold to what the reality I was observing with the, with the idea. Mm-hmm. I think for me, that's happened twice, <laughs> whereas the experts have been right like eight times, if you know what I mean. So I'd say that in general, the people who have a lot of experience who are trying to help you, not it's different if if you have a, um, your, your Facebook expert <laughs> telling you something versus a close colleague that's trying to help you or, you know, mm -hmm. the community of experts are trying to help you. Generally speaking, I would say like eight out of 10, nine out of 10 that community is is probably knows what they're talking about. So while you don't necessarily need to to not do your idea, you should you should think about either conveying it better or modifying it slightly to and some extent. Yeah, yeah I think that that's, I agree with that 100%. And kind of I do some work with Google X and one of their kind of values is to be like passionately dispassionate. And I think that kind of summarizes it really well. So you want to be passionate in your kind of investigations and de-risking and your rationale, but then you want to be dispassionate when you assess your idea and like, is this worth doing? Is this going to make the world better? Is this going to affect people's lives? Are we addressing a relevant question? So like, I sort of like think that summarizes it right. reasonably yeah, so well. Take the passion to power through and then use uh, critical thinking and rationality to evaluate the merits of the idea. Excellent. So mm -hmm. I think that's a, a good good way to wrap up. Thanks a lot for uh, participating in this. I was planning to be a bit of a short talk, but hey, it's a, a podcast. There's no cost on it. So we'll just, uh, <laughs> we'll just let it run. But yeah, thanks a lot. Can I add like one thing? Sure, sure, sure. Um, I just want to point people to the Open Source Leg website, which is www.opensourceleg.com. On the website, it includes like detailed assembly instructions, solid model files, bill of material, vendor information, tutorials on control and, and uh, sample code. There's open source data sets. So essentially everything that someone would need to kind of research and decide if they would like to either build a leg themselves or have us or someone like Kumotech who is interested in building these legs for people. Um, so if they're interested in kind of pursuing the open source leg, check out the website opensourceleg.com and you can reach out to either me or Levi um, and we can help you learn more or get started. Right. Thanks. I'll put a link to the article and the project and to your personal web pages so people can reach out. Sounds perfect. Thanks a lot. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to speak about the work. I think the podcast is a great idea. Yeah, I thought this was awesome. So thanks a ton for the invitation.